Welcome to On Target, the podcast helping software sales leaders drive more pipeline and close transformational deals. I'm your host, Alex Elaine. Let's get into it. The client will always come first. That's the attitude every person in sales needs to have. You as the salesperson, you need to deeply outkick your coverage from revenue generation standpoint. Much of the company is working on things that will move the dial on product, it'll move the dial drastically, and marketing moves the dial. Everywhere it moves the dial, but we are the, the cash register of the business. So I think that that needs to be our priority. I honestly can't stress enough how important diversity, inclusion, and empowering new voices is within any organization. That's why I'm proud to tell you about this new opportunity with a company I'm grateful to work with. Hire4 is a network that provides full lifecycle talent search and recruiting services customized to fit your needs. Whether you want growth, innovation, change, or diversity, Hire4's team of recruiting experts will match you with the best candidates and fast. From sales to marketing, human resources, and more, tell Hire4 what you're looking for, then sit back, relax, and wait to connect to top class talent. Send an email to team at hire4.co, that's team at h-i-r-e-f-o-r.co to get started. That's team at hire4.co, and don't forget to tell them that I sent you. Hello and welcome to On Target. I'm delighted to speak with my next guest, Chris Riley, about his background in financial services sales and to learn how he scaled his career from a credit risk intern to current VP of sales at Hum Capital. Hum Capital is the funding platform that connects great companies with the right capital. They offer companies raising up to $50 million via the most efficient and transparent path to growth. I'm very excited to deep dive into Chris's journey to date. And on that note, Chris, how are you? Alex, I am doing very well. Thank you very much for having me today. I'm, uh, I'm excited to get started here. Absolutely. Now, Chris, salespeople need to elevate uh, provide an elevator pitch for their solutions and offering on a daily basis. And I'm sure you do the same for your company. So if you had to have an elevator pitch for yourself in 30 seconds or less, how would you introduce yourself? I work for financial technology companies and I do that in helping their clients understand how technology will typically put themselves in a better financial position. It's sales pretty commonly, business development sometimes, origination sometimes. For me, I'm really only willing to work for a group that I totally believe in. It just has to be an open line of communication between my group and, and the other party that I'm speaking with at the time. So uh, I've done so at uh, a few different shops, but most of my time spent at Pitchbook Data and Home Capital. Now, if you're LinkedIn something to go by, your, your story looks pretty fascinating. I touched on a bit of it in the intro. But I'd love for you to just tell us about your story, Chris. Talk to us about some of the highlights, any big lessons and learnings. Uh, share whatever you think could resonate with the audience. Growing up in the shadow of New York City, if you will, uh, most things are focused around finance, Wall Street, uh, although not many uh, finance firms are on Wall Street anymore, uh, which is funny enough. <laughs> I wasn't sure what I wanted to do growing up. I was always a uh, class clown, maybe not as focused in school started work from maybe 15 years old and sort of figured that working hard was something that I, I wanted to do. I ended up at a local kind of regional bank 
in the commercial real estate finance area, which was sort of fascinating. I had a great boss, uh, Tom Stackhouse. I'll, I'll always remember those days. And after graduating college with a degree in econ, I was tempted to go and do that. And it was 10 minutes from home. So maybe a little bit too much of what I was used to. So I had a recruiter reach out from ZocDoc at the time, which was a lot of fun. Uh, it was a, a very, very intense sort of sales environment, but a lot of young people in the office, seeing people my age working hard in Manhattan in Soho, no less, seemed like a more exciting round. So that's sort of where the, the pivot began after about a year uh, at ZocDoc and it was during the crazy time. So a lot of high turnover. I think I was there longer than 75% of the sales force after having worked there for 11 months. I had a friend to go over to PitchBook Data. I figured I could use my new sales skills and my econ degree at the same time. And so then I kicked off. Me and my friend Mike were the first uh, SDRs in the New York office for PitchBook. So that was uh, a pretty great ride for the next five, six years. That's pretty awesome. And if we now fast forward to your, your current role where you're, you're leading a team from what I gather at a, a relatively young company, be great to learn a bit more about that transition and that evolution into a VP role. From the pitch book days, it was, I was in a closing role at ZocDoc, decided to take a step down and go back to be an SDR at, at PitchBook. It was worth it for me. It was a great company, uh, a unique topic. So I had the privilege of doing well at a company that was doing very, very well. And so that was really fun for me. And after an extended period of time of deciding to stay in that individual contributor role while still mentoring some folks, while still teaching how to use the product, teaching what are private equity fund returns and things of that nature, it got very comfortable. PitchBook's been acquired. They continue to grow at an incredible clip. It's one of the larger SaaS companies, I think, that really not many people talk about in, in sort of the sales circles that I'm in, at least. I could have gone into the sort of that that manager route at PitchBook, and it would have been exciting, but I wanted to bite off a new challenge, selling PitchBook to investment banks, to private debt funds, telling them best practices on how they could use our platform. I sort of always heard the tone of, good idea, kid, but we're going to do it our way, the old school way. And being able to be at a, a very technology forward sort of investment bank, private debt fund combo and doing it the way that I always thought it should be done in terms of finding new clients, it was right. And it's been, it's been really rewarding. And so taking on that big challenge, it was, it's very different going from a large company to really the first dedicated go-to-market hire. Uh, I had great mentors at home and we've really embarked on a very large mission. And these early wins have been very, very fun for us. Having those first hires, landing those first big deals has been really remarkable. And it's been very difficult in the onset of the zero to one type mentality, uh, but now very much running downhill, picking up steam, watching people be more successful than I was in the AE role has been really, really rewarding. So I'm uh, very happy with the team today. That's awesome. One of the things that really stood out to me and what you said there, Chris, was talking about the fact that you could have done what was comfortable uh, but you actively walked towards something that was less comfortable, that was clearly going to push you, stretch you, and create a better version of you ultimately. But you chose the, the the harder path, right? Or the path that certainly had less certainty. So kudos to you for that. 
I do want to double tap on really what you had to tap into to be willing to make that type of decision. I think there's a lot of people listening right now that comfort is probably front and center of their minds, especially when you look at the state of the economy and other things going on. So what is it in you and what would you advise to others that are currently in some form of comfort when in reality they should potentially be looking towards something that will stretch them? It's a great opportunity to have to bet on yourself and make a difficult decision. It takes living within your means and the means of if things go wrong, are you prepared to to be okay? And it's a difficult decision to make. So first and foremost, I think is people should be looking out for themselves. They should always be working around people that care for them. Uh, they should always have a support system, but they will always be their biggest champion. And so if you would like to go out and, and do something for yourself, be deliberate about how you're going to do that. If you can get to where you want to be in 10 or 15 years in your current role, you should stay there um, and you should absolutely do that. And people are doing fantastic things where I was uh, and it's been incredible to stay in touch with them and see, see what they've done. I've wanted to get started on the ground floor somewhere. And so when I made the decision to leave PitchBook, it was, it was a lot of patience. It was a lot of SaaS companies, a lot of fintech companies launched in that time. And it was interesting, but not enough to get you to jump ship. Uh, it's easy to get distracted by the greener pastures, the shiny toy, whatever you'd like to call it. But when everything comes together, it sort of just felt right for me. PitchBook put me in the position to do that. And I leaving, I was, was forever grateful for the whole team for giving me that platform. And then when it came time to, to look elsewhere, I wasn't approached by a recruiter. People say, oh, how did you get your, you know, your first uh, job at Hong Capital? It was a cold email to one of the founders. Uh, it wasn't anything glamorous. <laughs> That's how I ended up here. And a few interviews later, and I was learning a million things I didn't know and working 16 hours a day uh, during the thick of COVID. So it was uh, a trial by fire, but uh, can look back and be, be happy I made that choice. But it wasn't easy, but I think if folks are, are prepared to do it, they should do it and make sure that they have a, a good system around themselves to do so. There's a couple of sayings that come to my mind hearing that there's there's no risk, no reward. And there's also the fact that, you know, we often talk about luck and, and there's that saying that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And the fact that you sent a cold email to secure the role that you're in now is, is really telling of that, right? You uh, put yourself in a position where preparation met some form of opportunity and uh, look at you now. So uh, love a lot of the lessons from that. Want to switch gears slightly, Chris, to talk a bit about some of the core pillars of really building, sustaining, scaling, best-in-class sales teams. You, you've been in a position where you've been first on the ground or certainly within a first crop of kicking off a new team function or division. So just talk to us a bit about some of the, the, the core pillars that underpin starting and scaling a best-in-class sales team? It's an interesting question that I've seen before. And having listened to this podcast before, you've had folks on that are managing 50, 100-person teams uh, and have scaled from that first, you know, they'll call it that, that first class of three to 10 account executives. And I will let them tell that story. I will tell the story of, of sort of the zero to one, the kind of beginning to meet new clients to actually having a, a functioning sales team. 
many people will say sales is is art and science, and I I think that that's totally true. I think in the earlier days, it is very much about the art that what is right. How do we approach this? Let's experiment very much. Understand when we win. And take traits of that, but understand that you need a good sample size before you're ready to scale, before you actually know what works. For me, it was a small team of myself included, a couple of account executives working on prospecting and finding new clients and trying to network with the lenders and doing everything that we could. And we were doing well. We had some big early wins, but it still didn't feel right. Uh, and so come, you know, call it, probably 10 months ago, it's the decision of, well, what's wrong? What, what What's missing? By the math, we should just multiply this and, and we'll get that, but it didn't feel right. I felt that we could optimize better. So for us with our high velocity deals that are kind of a high ACV, it was a big SDR team made sense. And it was kind of looking at the picture of what we had and saying, this could work, but really we should add some some splashes of color on, on this corner of the painting, if you will, to get that, that group to be functioning as a whole. And so doing that, when people are working together, when everything's reaching efficiency, that's when you can start to realize the one plus one equals three. And that's when you can start to get to the point of, this is the core team that we need. This is what peak efficiency is starting to look like. Here's where we can improve. And here's when we're going to be ready to scale. So trusting yourself as this is what a sale should look like for this company at startups. You're typically the only company that's ever done that. Maybe not, but oftentimes that's the case. So it'll take a sense of intuition to figure out how to get there. Trusting that process of your creativity and your kind of gut is a great basis for getting, you know, kicking things off. I love this conversation, especially this piece around the real, real grassroots. So you mentioned this point around the the focus on the arts over the science. One of the challenges that I guess a lot of young companies have is that the pressure from investors and the need to make particular goals with really a sense of urgency to make sure that investors feel that they're getting what they need and what they would expect, right? Uh, and, and ultimately working towards an ROI on their investment. And then on the other side, you talk through this art and, and almost this experimentation that's required to start to figure things out to then put you in a position when you, where you can scale. So I'd love to get your perspective on how do you strike that balance between the experimentation, the art, the learning with the reality of the pressures to need to drive a return, meet goals, achieve targets? How do you find balance in that? Things need to be explained clearly. And it gets to the, the communication component of it. There was a great quote from Mark Roberge and HubSpot. Uh, I think there is their series A. And the investor said to him, all right, how many salespeople are you going to hire? And he said, that's a fair question. And I understand why you're asking it. I want to see how efficient we can get before we go out and hire folks, uh, before we expand this being able to explain the artwork, uh, explain the balance of it uh, without getting you know too far into a, an esoteric example like artwork is important. Giving folks a grassroots understanding of this is why an SDR makes an AE better. 
This is why the AE's pipeline will be run more efficiently. They will close more deals if they are not doing the prospecting work. These are all really important things. You can kind of create and iterate and experiment as, as the VP of sales and the SDRs, maybe it's their first job out of college. The account executives will kind of get it. They'll be speaking the same language. No one else at the company is on the sales team. They don't come from a background of that. Maybe they also came from a much larger company where they would never interface with the sales team. Letting them know why you're making the decisions you're making, giving them the reasoning and the, the paper trail of why we've come to the decisions we have, why we've seen success here, why we've seen you know failures in other areas, will give them the confidence that you are making your decision. Show me, don't tell me. Uh, you may think this is the best decision, Chris, but why? And if you have it all documented, pre-planned, or maybe not pre-planned, but understood by the broader group, that typically is a way to make people confident that you're making the right decisions. And it gives fodder for debate. I love for a process to be questioned. I hope that I have experts asking me why I'm doing something because it helps ensure that you as a VP of sales, your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed and you're putting your best foot forward and everyone's on the same page. I'm now thinking about the first hires that someone in your role would take on. So really the talent pipeline, some of the characteristics that are of critical importance for those first few hires, because you'd certainly expect that it, at each stage of growth, the DNA of the person that you require may evolve in some way or change in some way. So can you just talk to us about what are the key characteristics that you look for in those first few hires? And do you see that evolving as you start to move into new phases of the journey? Absolutely. I think on the first hires, it's at a startup, it's it's the ambition, and that is what you most want to gauge. You don't ask that, have to ask for it in an interview. It should come across of this person's driven to do this. They come in with a deep sense of maybe not the technical aspect, but the goal of the company and what they're chasing after, and they're inspired by that. I think that's what I was. I think when I see that in people, it's I can accept a bit of ambiguity because I know that we are all marching in the same direction, trying to achieve a certain goal. I think the first hires are generally at the account executive level, um, as opposed to to SBR or like enablement or customer success. And so on the account executive level, it's the ambition, it's the comfortability in an ambiguous commission structure, an ambiguous, you know, we're not sure what, what marketing will be doing and, and we're planning all of these things out being able to work together, to be patient, to put in a lot of hard work and know that some things will work out and some things won't, but that the ambitious person tends to be able to sacrifice some of the comfortability of consistent funnel of inbound leads. And, and they can forego that because they are embarking on a mission that they believe is right. On the SDR side, it's my view of this is you are not hiring SDRs, you are hiring your future account executives, and that should very much be your goal here. And being that you're hiring folks right out of college, you have an obligation to them to let them know that there are other paths that are easier. There are other paths that are not commission-based that are maybe safer routes. And when you can 
challenge someone and say, are you sure you're ready to pick up the phone and call someone that you don't know at all? It's tough to do. Are you sure about that? Seeing them with that confidence of, and that acceptance that they're ready to take a difficult path into sales is, is something that you're obligated to do. And I always get a smirk on my face when it's particularly an SDR that is not only accepting of it, but excited to do it. That for me has been very fun. And then depending on the product, uh, for us, it's, it's private debt, which is perhaps the most complicated thing in the world. I'll probably walk that back. There's many more complicated things. There needs to be a competence. There needs to be an ability to understand some of these topics, lean on what you know, kind of be curious about things that you don't know, uh, so on and so forth. So it's specific for each role, but uh, there's, there's certain things that you look for and you won't always get it right. That's, that's the other key takeaway. The, the passion, the drive, the hunger is just so incredibly important during those early days, certainly, right? Where, to your point, you're picking up the phone, uh, you know, this isn't uh, working for one of the big corporates where you, you've got the uh, benefit and the upside of your name immediately ringing bells and, and getting you through doors, right? It's, it's hustle at times and it's being able to have the mental fortitude to walk through the nose, walk through the rejection and keep pushing forward. So I did a post quite recently on LinkedIn saying I, I like to hire people that have some form of a chip on their shoulder. It can come in many different forms, but when you've got something to prove to yourself or to the world, uh, often when times get tough, you, you find a way forward. So I feel that's vitally important for early uh, hires, certainly in a startup ecosystem. And it sounds like we share a similar view in that regard. I want to move the conversation forward now, Chris, into talking about some operational excellence pieces, really trying to peel back the layers around how you set up your week and, and your world to, to drive as much efficiency as you can. So to start with, talk to us about what is Chris's, a typical week in the life of Chris Riley look like? It's the example of big rocks and, and little rocks of making sure you get the big things done first. Things that I like to ensure are always set is one-on-ones with my team. So there's always open communication there. I am very rarely canceling a one-on-one. Even if there's nothing to talk about, it's important that that forum is there. Most importantly, because we are a remote company, body language isn't there. Most communication is through body language. Uh, so being able to ask those questions to folks of how are you feeling really is really important for me. One-on-ones are really important to always keep there. Training's always on the schedule on, on Friday afternoons. We have it. We have our pipeline meeting on kind of lunchtime on Mondays just to make sure we can get all those things through. It's important to do that. It's important to block off the time that you will need to block off. I keep those things set. And then I understand that I will need to be flexible on different things that pop up throughout the week. There will be a last minute legal red line negotiation that we have to go through. There will be a client that's further down the funnel than, you know, kind of past the sales team. And then we need to hop back on the phone with them, uh, a hire on the product or, or finance team that we need to hop on the interview with. So you stay open for things like that, but get the important things in, respect people's time, uh, show up prepared. And that being said, run efficient meetings too. Uh, so that's typically my, my biggest priorities for, for every week as it pertains to time management. You, you spoke about some of the, let's call them fire alarms that can pop up, right? Customer red lines and, 
the last minute things that like to peek up their head at the, the worst possible time, which all can uh, contradict or go against uh, calendar control and being able to have good control over your schedule. So uh, what are the ways that, that you really seek to optimize how you manage your calendar, right? When these things come up, is there a way that you go about prioritization that we could all learn from? The client will always come first. That's the attitude every person in sales needs to have. Uh, and, and I believe that they should, if they're successful at least, being able to adjust to what this person needs because you as the salesperson, you need to deeply outkick your coverage from revenue generation standpoint. Much of the company is working on things that'll move the dial on product, it'll move the dial drastically and marketing moves the dial. Everywhere it moves the dial, but we are the, the cash register of the business. So I think that that needs to be our priority. We need to have that flexibility and make it clear to folks, you know, again, kind of explaining away any, any questions that people may have of, I need to focus on this. If I am not answering our client's question, when they have that question, who will? Otherwise they're waiting on us and perhaps their, their impression of us is I must not be the biggest priority, but they are, uh, they should be. So making it clear to folks how, what you're prioritizing and why you're prioritizing it, I found is, is a helpful way that people will, will respect your schedule. Letting people know that a good salesperson keeps themselves as busy as possible. And then they're, you know, taking their time to unwind as well so that the, spontaneous brainstorming session is fine. We can do it, but it needs to be scheduled. We need to respect people's time and the client will come first. And there, there needs to be that, that free space for when these things do pop up. Uh, so you can be on the phone within the hour for the, you know, that ninth inning question that might pop up. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's ultimately your customers, there's your team, and then arguably there's everything else, right? But if you're uh, driving and delivering great results for customers, you're there present for your team. Typically, most other things start to take care of themselves, but having some form of prioritization tiering is, is, is so important because you need to be able to make quick and effective decisions as a leader. And when things come up, you've got to be able to quickly say, actually, is this something I need to down tools on uh, to take care of, or actually can this wait? And so when you have that clarity around team first, customers first, it means that it's much easier to make effective decisions because you know if it's team or customer, it's probably something you may need to down tools for. But if it's anything else, it can likely wait. And, and having that conviction can be very, very important indeed. I'd love to understand for you, Chris, you know, we work in high pressured worlds, right? Sales is, is not easy. It's high pace. Uh, it's definitely a marathon versus a sprint. Almost feels like sprinting a marathon at times, but... Um, <laughs> I'd love to know how you go about staying healthy and, and energized throughout a typical working week. Are there any habits which have become a staple for you? Well, sleep is is the most important thing, but it, it's the hardest to sort of force, uh, for me at least. So to do that, I prioritize exercise. It's been cold for, for so long in New Jersey, although the winter was somewhat mild, but making sure you're out there for the run or the gym session I have a friend down the road that will send me a not so friendly text if he doesn't see me there in the morning so that being able to ensure that you're taking care of yourself, uh, you're kind of, a, you need to be behind the computer a lot, making sure that you're getting the sunlight 
is all very important to, to adding up to sleep and having the full day of productivity that you hope to have. Uh, diet's relatively important for that. But it, it's also important to focus on things that like can take your mind away. It's weekends, particularly when it's a regular weekend, we can call it. I'm keeping my phone down as much as possible to the extent that I get curious and, and you get, you get the bug by Sunday afternoon of, I want to double check what's going on this week. I, I want to make sure that, oh, we need to follow up with that client. I, I wonder what we'll write back to them on Monday morning. That gap, that break that you have in work is, is I think it's really important. Um, time away. The, the vacation time is put your phone down. I do not want to hear from you. Uh, if you are out, you know, on a beautiful vacation with, you know, your fiance or your wife or something, because you come back with that energy, that curiosity, that renewed kind of vision and focus that you had that, that got you excited for the job so, so many years ago, whenever you started. So I think it's, it's the weekly routines that you stick with and it's the long-term staying focused, knowing when to step away, uh, and having that, the ability to refresh whenever you're, you're kind of winding down that break. Why do you feel burnout is so high within our space? You know, we see it certainly for sellers, even more prevalent with leaders. What's your stance on why that rate is as high as it is? I've seen it very much. And I do believe, and I hope that it's sort of on the wind down because it was what, you know, when I call it 2014, so maybe not, not forever ago, but if you hire more account executives, you will make more money. That sort of logic was, was pervasive. And you might have founders and leaders be able to point to someone who did 250% of quota in a month and a quarter and say, why can't everyone be like, you know, Jane or John, whoever it was, uh, why can't they just do that? Well, Jane or John would be about done from an effort standpoint in six months time. That's why you can't keep doing that. And so for me, for my team, and maybe a, a polarizing take I have is the account executive is the face of the company. They need to be refreshed, prepared, and excited to speak with every single client that they have. If you have a company where they're expecting the salesperson to be on 10 phone calls in the day on, on half hour to half hour blocks, they won't be taking notes. It's impossible to you know, do all of that and your follow-up work. So I believe that do the most efficient work you can do on the account executive side and then step away then relax. Take the time between your, you know, your Tuesday to your Wednesday. I think that that's really important. But to kind of better answer the question, I think the rationale of the more you hire, the more revenue is, is sort of fading away. I think those kind of immature notions of, of productivity and efficiency are being realized by the broader kind of technology community, which is where I've spent most of my time. And I think people are realizing how expensive it is to hire rather than to have patience and to train. I've seen folks that were sort of doing the wrong things and maybe doing okay from a sales point, but it, it, it was toxic for the team. So it wasn't, wasn't allowed. I've seen folks not doing so well, but work so hard. And it was so easy to prove that it makes sense to keep that person around because it's a, a benchmark for productivity, for hard work. And so that's the type of first thing you want on the team. And it's really hard to find that person. So it's these types of expectations are kind of becoming normalized as some of these sales communities, Bravado, Pavilion, Repview, you name it, are, are becoming more and more popular. And we're kind of getting 
more and more power, bigger seats at the table. And I think that's been, been really important. So hats off to those groups for kind of doing what they have. One of the cool arts that I have on this as a broader topic is, you know, when, when we listen to a lot of the things that you spoke about, Chris, there's a large portion that ultimately aren't fully within a seller's control or potentially a leader's control, i.e. you haven't got the territory that you would have hoped for macroeconomic conditions. And so I became acutely aware, you know, several years ago that actually doing the self-work to be best prepared for life's circumstances, right, whether personal or professional, almost trumps in a way the importance of the company needing to try and create an environment that mitigates against these things. Now, that is not to say that, of course, a company should try and create the best possible culture and environment, but it's so important to do the individual work because you can't definitively control the way that your company operates. You can't definitively control the way life comes at you. And so, you know, I had a tough run back in 2017, pretty much on the brink, if not there or thereabouts at burnout. And I spent the last, you know, six, seven years having a, a maniacal focus on creating this personal operating rhythm that consists of exercise and meditation and consuming content that feeds the brain versus uh, is draining to the mind. And I've never really come close to any form of burnout since, but it's been a lot of intentional work. So it's a bit of a, a PSA, a public service announcement to say, do the work, right? Do the work on yourself. You can only control what, whatever is within your sphere, but you have 100% control over the actions that you take as an individual and the difference that you can make for your own life. So I'll give that as a bit of my own mic drop moment there. <laughs> I, re I resonate with that so much. And it gets back to me going from a pitch book to a home capital and it's control everything that you can and, and understand what you can't control. For me, I was... I was closing big deals. I was working with top tier financial services firms and it was kind of sexy work and it was fun. And I sort of had my, my opinions on, oh, I wish this was better. Or I wish that was better. And I kind of took a, a step back and I said, PitchBook's doing really well. I left and they were on target for 225 that year. I think they're on target for north of 600 this year. They're doing fine. They didn't need my advice to be better. But I had this this desire and this need to go out and do something bigger. So I realized what a great privilege it's been to be here. Uh, I'm so thankful for what I've learned. And, you know, with this platform, I'll, I'll take on the bigger challenge and take on the responsibilities that I do want because this place was in great shape when I got here. It's in, it's, you know, it's in great shape now that I'm with or without me. Uh, I, I don't think one sales rep moved the needle on, they might have 150, 200 these days. And uh, kind of controlling yourself and making the choices that you feel need to be made is, is super important. So I, I very much resonate with that uh, and appreciate it. So let's move into another segment here, Chris, just talking a bit more about winning business, right? And closing deals. I'd love to unpack with you any core principles that you believe really all sales leaders and sellers alike should be adhering to when it comes to winning business, whether it's frameworks, methodologies, ways of operating that have really underpinned a large part of your career? There's a lot of sales books out there. I think it's very easy to, to overread in this space. Some of my, my favorite on, on specifically selling is, I'll kind of break it down into three levels, is 
The first is, is the classic never split the difference with Chris Moss. There's simply, I'll call it kind of a street fighting techniques that you'll pick up in that book that just get you more information from your, your potential buyer. Mirroring is simply stating back what someone said to you, leaves them with this impression of they need to explain more and how much more you can uncover is, is really incredible. So that gives you kind of the, the quick tricks that are very helpful. You know, the FM DJ voice is, uh, is a favorite of mine. Past that, I've been very intrigued by uh, gap sales in particular of helping someone understand kind of where they are, but, but deeper, kind of why they're speaking to you. They might come to you and say, you know, I understand your software could solve my technical problem. Why is that technical problem a problem? What can you do sort of beyond that? And I was very skeptical of Keenan when he, when he came in and then he came in and I was kind of eyes opened and, and was sort of realized you can be better. Uh, I kind of pair that with the growth mindset. And then the third list, so that'll sort of set your, your strategy for how to, how to lay out your call. And third is sort of the, the most academic, which is thinking fast and thinking slow by Daniel Kahneman. It goes into the science and how people actually end up making decisions. And it's sort of proven, you could argue beyond a doubt that with small affirmations, it makes a bigger decision easier. It's quite easy to get caught up and trip over yourself trying to fold all of this into a conversation. But one of my favorite parts about sales is a salesperson is having the conversation about their product hundreds, if not thousands of times a year. So that's great. The other person engaging in that conversation, you might have a, a experienced buyer in you know the pitch book example. It was a managing director at an investment bank or a private equity fund, a phenomenal investor hasn't bought software and workflow tools all the time. So this is new for them. But sitting where I'm sitting as you know, an account executive there, I can level up and I can show them the way through that conversation and help them arrive at my conclusion. At Hum Capital, I'm meeting with, and my team's meeting with some of the most intelligent and brilliant founders in the world that are super technically adept, but they've never raised private debt before. They don't know anything besides a series A, B, or C. So enlightening them to what's possible, where they can go, and being well-versed in that is kind of the loose framework that I have for specifically for kind of account executives and maybe a smart way to approach the world. Absolutely. And I'd love to translate some of that into a deal, give you a second to maybe think about a deal, whether recent, historic, that stands out in your mind where you were able to apply one of these principles in some way. I'd love to hear how that uh, worked its way into more of a, a real life scenario we can get our minds into. Setting up the right framework, being being good at your conversation, it's important to stick to your guns. I'm thinking of a biotech hedge fund I worked with that was the most recent article that had popped up was that, you know, the three to four partners at the firm brought in, I think, $80 million in a single year. So these are, are the caliber of folks that you're speaking with. And it's easy to assume they will be smarter than you on absolutely everything. And in most things that might be true. But when it comes to the data that you're looking at, the workflow of, of what they might need to be doing, it's important to understand that you're the expert. The persistence in getting the phone call is, I could tell stories about that, becoming friends with a receptionist, 
knowing, you know, their favorite thing and knowing when you'd have to call back and the different emails that you'd send. But after five minutes of discovery with eventually the chief investment officer of this fund, and I had some, you know, my snarky prepared account executive question of, well, when I want to see a series B investment, I just do this search. What do you do? And he simply replied, we don't do anything, Chris. That's why I'm speaking to you today. And it's like, ah, you've got him. So it, it's good to have the confidence in something like that and, and fall back on it. And also, you know, uh, a hum capital example would be, it was a kind of a consumer focused startup subscription model that was growing insanely. When we'd ask about, talk to us about your priorities, raising capital, it's, well, we just answer an email and, and we turn people down and it's, so you say, hmm, well, they can raise money so easily. But the question of if all of the smartest funds in the world are trying to buy something from you, in this case, your equity, have you ever questioned why you would want to sell it? And it, it's sort of these, these thematic things that they don't have a problem, they don't have a problem, but they are speaking with us. Something that we said was interesting for them, being able to get back to that and have that confidence, despite who the counterparty is, is really important for salespeople to have. So kind of don't underestimate the competence that you do have and be curious about, about what you don't know. Great stories. I love it. Chris, I've got one final question for you, which is, what is the single best piece of advice that you'd give to anyone that's listening to help them to up-level in their career? The most important thing is to understand who and what is influencing the decisions that you make. For me, I looked at folks that when you fully start paying attention to your working and you're making a living, where do you want to go? What is the end game? That's when I really started paying attention and seeing people be successful at selling a, a startup, being an investor who started out in my shoes and ended up somewhere I really wanted to go. I mentioned Mark Roberger earlier. You see folks at, I think he's in stage two capital. We see GTM funds, all these groups starting up. There's uh, Sam Blonde at Founders Fund now. That story is for me the most appealing. So I said to myself, well, investing in technology is probably never going to get old. How do you kind of get to the end game there and figure out what are the steps that you'll need to take? And once you do that, who are you going to get the advice from to level yourself up along the way? If you're an SDR today and you're looking at how to become an account executive, don't take advice from the SDR sitting next to you. Take advice from the account executive that's leading the board. If you are on the account executive side and you want to be a VP of sales one day, take advice from the VP of sales. Don't take advice from the manager or someone. Don't follow the footsteps of someone that went to a place that you didn't want to go. That for me is, is most important. So like structure how you get to where you want to go and then figure out step-by-step, step, what do I need to do to cross each threshold and hopefully get to where I want to go. Great way to finish. Chris, really appreciate your wisdom and insights. Have you enjoyed being on? Alex, it was uh, such a pleasure. I've, uh, I've listened for a while, so it's, uh, it's fun to be part of it. Well, grateful for your support. Thanks again for coming on. To anyone out there listening, if you're tuning in on YouTube, please make sure that you like, comment, share and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please take a moment to leave us a five star review and uh, drop myself and Chris a message. Let us know that you've listened, enjoyed it. And I look forward to seeing you on the next one. Thanks for tuning in. 
Never miss a tactic or actionable insight by subscribing to On Target wherever you get your podcasts. And if you gain value from the show, I would love it if you could share it with a friend and give us a five-star review. See you next time.